They tell you all these statistics about how good they're doing. You know how good they're doing? Look at their fat wallets. That's how good they're doing. It has nothing to do with, with rehabilitation at all. It has everything to do with keeping them, getting as many as they can and keeping them as long as they can. And that goes to understaffing, and that goes to not giving them enough programs, and that goes to basically everything they else do by shot staffing people, not paying them right, not giving them any pensions. I mean, it, it's really any, I don't see any logical reason to support private prisons unless you're a shareholder. Welcome to the Prison Cells Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Craig, and with us, as usual, is Tank Johnson. Tank, how are you doing this morning? Doing good. Doing good. Great. And also with us, as usual, is John Dacey. John, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. Hi, everyone. And John, I'll turn it over to you to introduce our very special guest this morning. So that would be Brian Daw, um, the director of One Voice United. Uh, Brian, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, John. Good to hear your voice. How you been? Uh, great. And, and so Brian and I have, have shared at least half dozen podiums over the years. Um, I know that, that uh, Brian has a degree in, in criminal justice and has worked as a corrections officer and union organizer um, and is now doing so much more than that. Um, and uh, Brian, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us. My pleasure. It's a very important topic. So Brian, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, do the work that you did, what your background is like, and especially how you came to know John and the work that you guys have done together? Sure, it'd be a pleasure. Um, I started as a state correctional officer in Massachusetts in 1982, um, way back when. And uh, over the years, I started getting involved with the union movement and uh, was a union steward. And in fact, in 1988, myself and another officer, uh, we branched out from the union we were working with and formed our own. And it's the Massachusetts Correctional Officers Federated Union, which is, I'm proud to say, still in existence 35 years later, and is also the largest law enforcement union in New England. Um, at that point in time, as an independent union, we didn't have a lot of contacts nationally. And so I started reaching out to other correctional officer unions across the country and started trying to share some best practices. You know, 95% of what we do behind the walls is the same no matter where you are, whether you're in Alaska, New York, or Florida. A prison is a prison in a prison, and it's pretty much the same, the same job in the way where you go. So with the problems we have in the prison situation being so universal, we figured that the solutions must be universal as well. And so we started sharing contacts and talking about best practices. And around the late 1980s, the private prison movement started to pop its head up in Tennessee. And as we were connecting across the country with other officers, we started paying a little more attention to this as it was coming on board. Uh, as we saw more and more stories coming out of the private prison industry, we started getting very concerned about what they were doing and the impact it would have on corrections as a policy. So we started monitoring very closely. We realized right off the bat that their modus operandi, their business model, flew directly in the face of what corrections is supposed to be about. So the closer we looked, the worse they looked. Uh, and that's when we started saying, okay, we've got to put an end to this. Um, this is a public safety matter. This is not something for profit. Uh, they can't be, this is a dungeon for dollars type situation uh, where they make their profit based on how many inmates they can keep and how long they can keep them. That flies directly in the face of what society needs and what we're supposed to be doing in corrections. And so that got our dandruff and we started fighting them across the board. And that's how I ran into John uh, is enduring some of these battles. We've had protests all across the country against these folks. Uh, they need to be rooted out and they need to be out of the criminal justice system. So I think, I think one sort of reaction that people are going to have, you know, we've, we've spoken to a lot of different people on the podcast and I think a sort of gut reaction is why should we be talking to a corrections officer who's part of the system um, when a lot of the time these issues get framed as, you know, a, a monolithic criminal justice system that is sort of 
hurting communities and hurting individuals. So I wonder if you can explain a little bit about why you think that corrections officers can be a good partner when it comes to like common sense reform and making things better. Well, let's be honest. The only two stakeholders that really have anything that sh should have the most to say is the inmate population and the officers. We're the ones that are most directly impacted by these policies and decisions. And some of the biggest problems we have in corrections today is the fact that a lot of these policies and decisions are being made from people who have no idea what the job is about and what it details every day and what it means to the men and women who have to go into these places and do that job. There is no better voice about change and reform than the men and women who do that job every day. The biggest problems we've had is the failure of administrations to listen to those men and women. They know the problems better than anyone and better than anyone in any other solutions as well. Here's one of our biggest problems, Robert. Every four years, a new warden will come in. That's on average. So in a 20-year career, I'm going to have five totally separate different administrations. And depending on the political winds, I'm going to have a conservative, then I'm going to have a liberal, then I'm going to have somebody in the middle. And we have to change policies every four years after that. And they never come to us to find out what worked and what didn't work. And one of the biggest problems we have now is the gathering information, which the private prison is notorious for refusing to give up. And now their public partners are as well. But as far as who should you talk to about these problems mm -hmm. within prisons, we're the people that are there every day. Hey, hey Brian, this is Tank. Can, can you hear me? Hi, Tank. Nice to talk to you. Yes, I can. Yeah. So I actually find it really uh, fascinating because like what you were doing in the prison world, I, I tend to do, I do that for the National Football League where I try to look at best practices and and offer solutions. And one of the things that I noticed is that uh, they don't always go for the low hanging fruit. Right. And, and, and so when, when you look at resources to bring um, if it's in line with kind of similar to what you say, like what's going on in the news or the political climate, did you feel like they were more receptive to the things that were kind of on the front page of the news um, for that reason? No, I think to be quite honest with you, most of the Department of Corrections would like to just put a veil over everything they do and say. If they could do it that way, that's what they would do. Um, you don't see organizations. I just had a meeting just the other day with, with heads of uh, a certain, I won't name the state, but heads of state of Department of Corrections. And they were telling me there's no communication between them. All these different departments will have different academies. They will have different uh, disciplinary sanctions. They'll have different policies on segregation. There's no communication. There's no national training standards. There's no guidelines for people to go by. It's like there's 50 different little fiefdoms. And then on top of that, you've got all the different county jail, jail systems as well. And there's very little cohesiveness and very little communication between those for best practices. That was one of the reasons I had to stop the American Correctional Officer Intelligence Network was because there was no output to find no way to gather those best practices. Wow. Brian, this is John. Could could you go back um, and and perhaps maybe backfill some of the terms that you've used or that we might be using as we go forward, and, and perhaps connect it to your actual experience? So you've mentioned best practices, but plainly that's going to come from in part your personal experience as a corrections officer, and then working with a lot of other corrections people over the years. What are the kinds of experiences you had in what kinds of facilities and how do you develop these notions of, of best practices and what's needed? Well, I think, John, one of the hardest things we're dealing with now, as I said, with the, the, the failure to communicate is also a failure to share any type of metrics with which we can tell whether or not we're being successful. You know, there's very little information out there about assault statistics about recidivism rates that you can really actually take a solid look at and see, yeah, this is the real, these are the real numbers. There's very little information. And now we have the biggest problem that we've had forever, uh, not forever, but, but since actually 9-11, was the Patriot Act. Before the Patriot Act, um, there was a yearbook called the Corrections Yearbook. And all the departments of corrections and the private prison industries would send their information to the Corrections Yearbook. We called it the Bible. And it would be published every year. And it had really the metrics by which you could judge was whether or not the system was working. Your assault rates, your recidivism rates, your training, um, your retention rates, uh, whether or not inmates were being prosecuted, when they were getting out, what their return was. 
All of those statistics were included in that paperwork. And so we could take a look at what was happening and what was working and what wasn't. Well, when 9-11 came along and the Patriot came along, a lot of the departments of corrections started hiding behind the veil and saying, no, we can't give this information out. And actually, it wound up being the demise of the Corrections Yearbook. They stopped giving them information. There's no central database right now for corrections information. You have the Bureau of Justice Statistics, but their statistics are so flawed, it's ridiculous. I mean, just the fact that they put out, they will tell people that the inmate-to-officer ratio is 5.4 to 1. There is not a prison facility in this country where the ratio is 5.4 to 1. In 1982, when I started, it was me and 44 inmates in a housing unit. When I left, it was me and 66. And that's back in 1994, 98. And those numbers have only gotten worse. We have to be able to draw out the information from these departments in order to see what the best practices are. We have to stop this reluctance of sharing information. This isn't rocket science in prisons. We know what we're doing in there. And we know what has to be done. And sharing best practices is one of the best things we can do. And let me give you something on the private prison industry about this very point. The private prison industry loves to come out and tell everybody that they're just as good or they're better than the public sector. But ask them to prove it and watch them run and hide. And I have the exact proof of that. In, 19, in 2005, myself, I was with an organization called Corrections USA. And we worked with uh, Representative Ted Strickland from Ohio and Peter King from New York. And we filed legislation called the Private Prison Information Act. This is 17 years ago. H.R. 74 was the number. This is 17 years ago. The private prison industry has refused and has fought that tooth and nail. And all that act said, the only thing it said was that the private prison industry must disclose to the same extent as the public industry, the federal prison system, all those statistics. That's all it said. They didn't have to give any more, no less, but they had to provide the same amount of information. Now, let me ask you this. If I'm competing against your company and I'm killing you, I'm, I'm more efficient, I'm less, not as costly, I have low recidivism rates, I'm doing all around better job, wouldn't I want to take the opportunity to disclose that information? Yeah, you'd want to Why would I do that. the exact opposite, Tank? Why would I spend $3.5 million in one year alone to make sure that legislation doesn't hit the, the seat of the light of day? What does that tell you? Right? Now, that's 17 years ago. To this day, that legislation is filed every year, and every year they fight against it. And all it says is they've got to disclose the same thing that we do. And if I got the winning hand, I'm going to be running to that legislation. I'm going to support it all the way, and I'm going to say, see, here's my information. I'm going to show you how good we are. Yet they go the exact opposite way. Why would that be? At APP, we believe the only way to truly end for-profit prisons in the United States is to challenge the constitutionality of private for-profit prisons in the courts. And with your help and moral courage, we will succeed. Completely donor-funded, we ask for your support. Your tax-deductible contribution will provide vital funding for building the infrastructure necessary to win a fight of this scale. And every dollar will bring us one step closer to our goal of abolishing private prisons. Please join the fight today by visiting abolishprivateprisons.org and click the donate button at the top of the site. And of course, like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells Podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. And it's not like they're not paying for publicity, right? Like the Day One Alliance, their trade group, is well-funded. You know, they, they put out lots of information about all the beautiful work they're doing and, you know, the positive impacts that they make on communities and how they're helping prisoners do this and do that. So it's not for like a lack of funding that they're trying, you know, I, I could see a, a theoretical argument saying it would, we don't have the money to spend to get information out there. But they're spending like millions of dollars to get information out there. But it's just, you know, it's information that they can make up because they don't have to disclose any of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it gets worse. Uh, as far as the, the disclosure goes, they will scream and yell how great they are. You know, and, they'll, and they'll put all this stuff out. But when you call them on it, there's nothing there. It's a paper tiger. There's nothing there. They've got nothing to back up all these claims they're making. But I, I think the confidence comes from them knowing that they've got certain politicians in their pocket that will never challenge any of their positions. And, and, and the only way that you can speak that confidently about, you know, things that, you know, no one's ever going to be able to actually thumb through the data is, is when you know, uh, and no uncertain terms, you've got, you've got backing by the right people. 
if we could, uh, Brian, go back to the best practices issue because I'm assuming, following up on Tank's comment, um, organizations, unions like yours um, or the ones you work with may identify best practices, but then there's a whole other issue of how do you get them implemented? Um, and would you talk a bit about your activities in identifying what are best practices and corrections? Maybe you can give a few examples. And secondly, besides the communication barrier, what other kinds of difficulties do you find in implementing, especially on some kind of broad basis? Well, to be quite honest with you, the correction system is a complete failure in this country. It's designed to fail. It wasn't designed, it's not designed for, for rehabilitation. It's not designed to bring people back in to society. We're very happy as a society to keep people locked up. We like that. That's who we are. We're a vengeful group. It's very unfortunate, but that's the reality of the situation. It's very difficult to get policies changed and things passed to adopt best practices. Usually it takes body bags. That's usually when we wind up getting a change in best practices. Um, I can give you example after example after example of things that departments of corrections have done that fly directly in the face of what they should be doing for best practice. I'll give you one right off the top. I started in corrections. When, they toured, when I toured my first facility, uh, the lieutenant who brought us on the tour pointed to the towers in the yard and said, you see those towers? If the yard goes sideways, if there's a problem, if there's a riot, if something breaks out, get to those towers because those towers have firepower and they'll be able to cover you and protect you until we can get in and get you out of those towers. Okay? So we know that's a very important piece of, of public safety equipment to make sure that people can't get out of the facility, but also protect those staff members and also the people who are incarcerated while they're in that facility, right? Protect them from other people trying to kill them or whatever. About five years in, I show up for work one day, I go to roll call, and they call out where everyone's going to work, and they don't call out the towers. So the union official says, uh, Captain, uh, what's going on with the towers? Why is anybody going to, oh, we're not going to use them anymore. It's too expensive. We're going to use an outer perimeter uh, patrol. What did that just tell every single one of us? Bend over and kiss your butt goodbye for all we care. Right? Another thing they did. Roll call, one of the most important things you can have, pre-ship briefing. When you walk into a facility, and, and like I walked into my facility, 44 inmates or 66 inmates in me, you need to know when you, before you go in there what the temperature is in that facility. What's going on? Has there been any gang problems? Has there any big contraband fines? Is there any news going on that you really need to know to make sure you can cover your rear end when you get in there? And also it gave us an opportunity to share and have some camaraderie. This is a dangerous, difficult job. And you have to have that feeling of oneness sometimes to be willing to go in there, to know that people have got your back. They got rid of roll call. Now people go in, you get your keys, you walk in, you have no idea what the hell you're walking into. You think they care? No, they don't. So we can talk about best practices all we want, but until the body bags start filling up, they don't listen. Everything comes down to budgets and what they can control through their budgets and what they will and will not do. You know, they give us a big hot lottie da about mental health too. They don't care about our mental health either. If they would, they wouldn't do the things they do. So it sounds like um, staffing is an incredible component in terms of training, experience, and longevity. Um, could you uh, talk about that a bit and, and what kind of variances you've seen? Well, staffing uh, is the most critical, critical thing there is in a correctional facility. Uh, staffing controls the whole tenor of how, if, if we don't have enough staff, there's not enough programs. There's more idle time, right? We can't, there's not, there's not as many visits as there should be. There's more downtime. You know, we've had a tremendous problem with throughout COVID because of all the outside communication that was shut down. We don't want these guys and gals to be idle in there. It doesn't do anybody any good. It only causes problems. But we will not, we will not give up our safety and security for a program. If you have a housing unit that is supposed to have two officers and you pull one of them for an AMA program, you're going to have a problem with the officers, right? You have to staff this properly. Are we against programming? Absolutely not. There should be more of it. The studies we have done and the surveys we've taken among correctional officers, they firmly believe in the rehabilitation process. 
But first has to come the public safety and the safety of the men and women we work with and the civilian staff that we work with as well. Staffing is critical to all of those things. Staffing is also critical right now. We're having trouble all over the country with mandatory overtime. Rikers Island, they're doing 24-hour shifts in Rikers Island. I don't want to work with anybody who's just been behind the walls for 24 hours. They can't take my back. They don't have the observation skills they need at that point in time. I don't want that in there. No one should want that. You know, without the proper staff, you can't have rehabilitation. You can't have public safety. It all comes down to staffing. All of it. Uh, so, Brian, my, so, you know, my, my life was spent playing professional sports. So I, I draw a lot of my comparisons to that. And I remember when we had the concussion settlement, um, you know, you made the comment that like body bags are the only way you're going to get guys, these people to change their hearts and minds. And so, um, I'm looking at like the NFL when, when the concussion, uh, settlement happened. So if, if body bags is number one, would you say that media is number two is getting the word out? Absolutely. Our biggest problem is the, is, is the way people view us in corrections. There's no counter-narrative to the negative. You know, with other law enforcement personnel, the police, now they're under fire right now. We're all under fire in law enforcement. But the police at least have a counter-narrative. When they break up that, that robbery, when they solve that crime, when they stop that assault, there's, all, there's news all over the press for that. And there should be. They deserve those accolades. We do that every single day. We're 9-11. We're 9 There's nobody coming through the door after us. Whenever there's a riot, whenever someone's trying to kill somebody else, whenever there's a drug deal, whenever there's a medical problem, whenever there's a fire, we're the first responders. We're the only responders. We're the only ones that go in the door. You'll never see that from the media. How many, ne- how many, how many strikes have you guys ever done or, or work stoppages or anything along those lines? We can't strike. It's against the law. We're public safety. We can't strike. It's illegal. We can't. They'll fire you on the spot. You can't. Uh, we're putting people in, put their lives in danger when we walk at the job. You can't. Sounds like an incentive to strike to me. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I'm a strong union guy, Tank. I always have been. I come from a, a union family. I helped start a union. My dad was a teamster his whole life. I went to, you know, everything we've had in my family was because of union. You won't get a stronger union guy than I am. You know? Uh, but I also understand that we got one hell of an uphill fight when we're in corrections. You know, and, and let me say this too. I, I don't want to. I don't want anybody to think I'm pointing fingers at the administrations, because like all of us, we have fallen into a role that society has decided this is how it's going to be. A correctional officer, when they first start their job, what do you think they know? Unless they're a legacy, what do you think they know? They know what you know. They know from the Jimmy Cagney movies. They know from from uh, from the movies and that you see on TV and from Orange Is the New Black and all that nonsense. That you see out there. That's what they think corrections is. What do you think the inmates think when they're approaching a, a jail or a prison? They think exactly what this on that scene on the media too. This is how I have to act. This is how I'm supposed to be. And it's the same thing for the administration. We're all caught up in this cycle of failure and one feeds off the other. And I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I don't know how to break it. We're trying right now. We're trying to really work on the mental health aspect of it and hopeful. We're trying to find those issues that can bring us together to start the conversation, to make the changes we need. And we need to be sitting down and talking with the inmate advocates as well. You know, there's certain things that they want that we want. They want minimum staffing standards that's better for the inmate population. So don't we. They'd like single bunking. We'd love to see single bunking. It makes it much easier to control the situation. It's much better for the inmate population. It lowers tensions. They agree with that too. They want more programming. We want to see more programming, not at the cost of safety, but we still want to see more programming. I don't want to see the kid come back three years from now. I'm a member of this society too. You know, so there's a lot we a lot we face, but there's a lot we can do together. I'm not giving up hope, even though I've got this is my 40th year in this business. I'm going to keep pushing forward, and I think we've found a few inroads in which we can have some common ground uh, to move forward with it. And I think we hopefully we can start from there. Brian, I've seen you speak a number of times and and read some of your writings that talk about the stressful environment um, in which you and your colleagues have worked and in which, of course, people incarcerated have had to live for long periods of time. And Tank just talked about the whole issue of 
basically head injuries in the NFL and, you know, how much before there's change. What are you seeing with your fellow correction officers, the effects of working in this environment over time? Um, well, it's a very easy thing to put to you. The average American lives to age 75. The average correctional officer lives to age 61. The average American has a 3.5% PTSD rate through the general population. The correctional officer population has a 34.1% PTSD rate. We lose 11 officers a year line of duty deaths, murdered by the inmate population, or die while responding to an incident. That's 11 a year. 156 take their lives. Three correctional officers every week take their lives. We have the highest divorce rate of any law enforcement agency. We have the highest alcohol and substance abuse of any alcohol uh, of any uh, law enforcement agency. All right, we have the highest suicide rate by far. Our PTSD rate is double that of the police and firefighters. All right, we are in an enclosed environment with no positive feedback ever. The only feedback we get is negative. We're taught from day one to trust no one. You walk in that door and you're told as a rookie, never say yes first, always say no. You can always get to yes, but you can never go the other way. So everything is a no, and it's always us against them. And then when you get out of the training academy, what's the first thing you hear from your office, brother and sister officers on the line? No, 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 don't listen to the training academy. That's not the way it's done. This is the way it's done. So the second lesson you learned is everything you was taught about survival is wrong. And then you wind up with officers being disciplined, and you quickly realize management pulled roll call. Management took the officers out of the towers. They don't care about me either. So who do you got? You got the guy or the gal that's standing beside you, and that's all you got. And then the things you see and the things you have to do sometimes and the things you go through, you don't bring that home to your family. You can't sit down and talk to your loved ones of what happened today when you had urine and feces thrown on you and, and, and semen and everything else. You don't sit back to your family and say, geez, guess what happened to me at work today? What do you do with that? You eat it. You keep it inside. You die when you're 61. You commit suicide. And that's not just the only problems. The stress leads to obesity. It leads to diabetes. It leads to all kinds of problems. And the money the departments are losing as a result of this. Right? The average officer with PTSD will take seven days more a year than anybody else. When you figure that out across the board, it winds up costing about $40,000 per year for 1,000 full, 1, full-time employees per facility. It's costing millions and millions of dollars in PTSD in officer leave, in lost leave time. It's the I've most heard, devastating thing we face. Brian, I've heard you say before that people who have known you a long time have said they've noticed how your work as a corrections officer has changed you. Can, can you describe that a bit? Yeah. Uh, I've, I was never an angry guy. Uh, I was never somebody who flew off the handle. In fact, to be quite honest with you, John, when I got out of high school, I put my thumb out, threw my guitar over my shoulder, and went to Colorado. I lived in a commune. You know, my friends thought I would, the last place that I thought I would wind up would be in jail, unless I didn't have the keys. They never thought I'd have the keys. You know, that I wasn't a troublemaker, but I was certainly not anybody that, you know, was looking towards law enforcement. Um, I'm sorry, I, I lost myself in your question. What was it? How, how has working corrections oh. changed you? <laughs> yeah, well... You know, I never used to count my change. You know, I'd go in and buy a newspaper or buy a soda or whatever it is, and I'd get the change back. I wouldn't think anything about it. A couple of years in the corrections, I started counting my change all the time. Uh, is that because of how much they pay you or? <laughs> That's because of no trust. Because you lose trust in everything. I read that in your article and I was like, this could go a lot of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's you lose your trust. You know, you see so much. You see so many damaging things while you're behind those walls. You use your trust in man and in humanity. You know, and one of our biggest problems, and you talk about the stresses of the job, John, you know, when I first went in behind the walls, we don't have inmates in mental health facilities like we should. We got rid of the mental health facilities in the 80s. We have a lot of inmates right now, actually 61%, not 60, 64% of the inmates entering jail have mental health problems. 64%. Do you know there's only one state that trains officers and deal is checked at the time clock every day? 
And that takes a brutal beating on you when you can't react as a human being to another human being in trouble because it would make you look weak. That's a pretty devastating thing to have to live with. You know, if you want to see the impacts of, of this life on a correctional officer and what it can do, I ask you to go to our website, www.onevoiceunited.org, and I'll ask you to take a look at Officer Stephen Walker's video from California. Stephen is a Marine. His dad was a Marine. His son was a Marine. All three of them are correctional officers. His dad died recently in January. His son committed suicide in June. He talks about the devastation that this job has on us as human beings and what it does to us. And it's devastating. It's nothing you can take lightly. It's something we all have to look at as society is what this is doing. And I bring this to you too. If that's doing it to us, to the men and women who work there, what's it doing to the men and women who live there? And now combine our PTSD with their PTSD. And I think you've got a pretty volatile situation. Yeah, it sounds like you got a recipe for disaster there. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I tend to look at is like the correlation between things. And I think like many of the negative stats and uh, many of the negative attributes that are in these prisons are a direct result of the business model. Right. And so I I'm thinking, like, how do we highlight that where we can show like, you know, the very things that is the foundation of these prisons are the things that are causing the recidivism, the, you know, the, the mental health problems. And I, I think the more we can make that correlation, uh, like clear, I, I think that I, I think personally that would help, um, change the hearts and minds. What, what do you think about that? Well, if you take a look, it's such a perverse incentive, these private prisons. Right. Take a look at it. Uh, you know that an officer, well, they're not officers. The, the Supreme Court has ruled they're not officers. They're guards. They're private guards. Um, think about this. Their pensions are based on the profits of the company. The profits of the company are based on the number of inmates they hold and how long they hold them. An officer or a guard has a direct impact on that amount of time. They can write up disciplinary reports. They can write up reports that are harsher. They can let things go and then turn inmates in. They have a perverse in, in, uh, incentive to keep them there. How can anybody possibly support, support a system whereby we're looking for rehabilitation when on the same hand, the very profits that the people are, who are controlling that are based on how long they stay and how many they have? If you can't look at it just from that simple aspect and say, well, that's dead wrong, then I don't know where to go from there. Because that to me just seems to be, I, and you've got to look at this too. I can, can you imagine the shareholders meeting, right? When the head of course civic comes in and says, hey, guess what? We had a great year. Our recidivism rate is down to only 5%. Isn't that great? That's the worst news the stockholders could possibly hear. Right? Yeah. So sure. is that what they're gunning for? Hell no. They tell you all these statistics about how good they're doing. You know how good they're doing? Look at their fat wallets. That's how good they're doing. It has nothing to do with, with rehabilitation at all. It has everything to do with keeping them, getting as many as they can and keeping them as long as they can. And that goes to understaffing, and that goes to not giving them enough programs, and that goes to basically everything they else do by shot staffing people, not paying them right, not giving any pensions. I mean, it, it's really... Any, I don't see any logical reason to support private prisons unless you're a shareholder. There are many ways to get involved with the Prison Cells podcast, build your moral courage, and help us eradicate for-profit prisons in the U.S. Visit abolishprivateprisons.org today and build the momentum of abolishing private prisons by working with an organization to pass a resolution in support of the cause. Get to know the ins and outs of how private prisons operate and why. Outside of the site, you can write your congressperson and shed light on this awful practice. As always, please like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells Podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. Brian, how much freedom do you have if you're one of the, you just mentioned there, you know, that the individual guard has the incentive to sort of 
you know, change the way that they're writing up somebody to make sure they come back and that sort of corporate culture thing. If you're a frontline officer or guard, depending on where you're at, how much freedom do you have in terms of how you make that initial reaction to to somebody who's inside, right? Like how much freedom do you have to determine whether to write somebody up, if you write somebody up, how serious it is? How much flexibility do you have? Depends on the agency you're working for and the level of discretion they allow. Uh, and it also depends on, you know, if you're in a situation where you have body cameras and stuff, it's a little bit different situation. And I think we all should have body cameras at this point in time. I think that protects the officers more than anything else. Um, yeah, so it's a hard it's a hard thing to really judge, to be honest. It strikes me a lot of the stuff you're talking about in terms of, you know, changing of the guards and people not understanding is is very similar to how teachers speak, right? You have when you're a teacher, you have these administrations that come in and all of a sudden a new principal comes in and you've got uh, this new way that you're supposed to teach. And the same thing happens where they don't ask teachers like what's working, the same issues with collecting data about what's working. Um, when I was teaching, I remember just being shocked that there wasn't a place that I could go to, like a national database or whatever, where I could say, what's the best way to teach a fifth grader you know, how to multiply two numbers together and do long division? Like that didn't exist at all, which is crazy because there's so many teachers, there's so many students, and it's so important to everything. It's 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 just shocking that there's not this way to like get information and share it with each other and then implement it. I agree completely. I think one of the very first things we need is a national disclosure bill that mandates that all these Department of Corrections, if they're going to get any federal grants whatsoever, have to reach a certain standard of amount of data that they will turn in at a specific time. And that should be across the board. And let's face facts here. We're talking about people's freedom. And we're talking about every single one of these persons who's in there and every dollar that's spent as a taxpayer's dollar. And every single one of these prisons. These are all taxpayers' dollars. We have the right to know all of this stuff. I can't see how the department says they have the right to not tell us. They hide behind the screen and say, oh, we can't tell you that because uh, the inmates will find out. You know, that's why we can't tell you the staffing ratio. You know how much BS that is? The inmates know more about us than anybody knows about us. They know who's going to be working when, what your proclivities are, whether you were hungover the night before, uh, if you had the day off. They know, they get 24 hours a day to watch exactly what they do, what, what we do. And to have the department say, oh, geez, you know, this is secret stuff. Baloney. It isn't secret sauce. You know, and there's one of the biggest problems with the private prison industry, too. They will hide behind what they call the corporate veil, proprietary interests. There are no proprietary interests in corrections. You mean to tell me that if you find out a better way to do the job that's going to save somebody's life, you're going to be hide behind proprietary interests? Excuse my language. Bullshit. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, and the fact that we allow it to go on is insane. Why aren't we dragging these politicians in who are taking this money from these corporations and making them answer? Be a long list, wouldn't it? Look at the judges, John, right, in Pennsylvania, doing time now for taking $2 million in bribes to put kids in jail. I mean, this is one of the most perverse things. We've done some stupid things in this country, but this is one of the real stupid ones. Well, what about the national accreditation of these facilities, the American Corrections Association? Doesn't that take care of the problem? All I would say about ACA, <laughs> all I would say about ACA is to read Senator Warren's report that came out two years ago on the ACA uh, and their link with the private prison industry. Am I in favor of accreditation? Absolutely. Do I think there should be oversight? Without question. Do I think the ACA is the organization to do it? Absolutely not. Do they have some good things? Yes. At heart, they have a good, they have a very good idea and sound principles. However, they have been co-opted by the private prison industry, who now basically funds them and goes to all their big conferences and sits on their decision-making boards. So they've been compromised out of public safety and into corporate profit. It's very unfortunate. We do need an accreditation process that works, one that's not linked to the institutions, one that has no financial bearing from the institutions, and has no social links to anybody that works in the facility. There are ways and, to do and it. You don't, actually, and, you don't think, and you don't think that that anything like that currently exists uh, uh, organization that is capable of that type of oversight or, or would that have to be created from scratch? I think that unless you root out the money, the private money that's going to the ACA, you have to start from scratch. It has to be an agency that's funded 
to the government that has no ties to the particular organizations in which they're accredited. If you want to have a real sound accreditation process. No, it's, 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 it reminds me of when the NFL is investigating the NFL for racism claims. It's like, how is anyone going to believe the outcome of this investigation when, you know, you guys have already, it's just, it's crazy. So I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that, um, there, there needs to be an independent, independent oversight committee. Um, and it's, it's just that like, yeah, like the human element and is the most unpredictable element you can ever have. And it's, it's just money corrupts all. And when, and when in this business too, tank, much like your business, this is a people business. We're not talking about widgets. This isn't some Coca-Cola factory. We're talking about people's lives here. Well, this is, this is a, uh, how we get, how we have gotten to this point uh, in our incarceration. It's just, I don't know how we get out of it. Do you think, why is it hard to get people fired up about this issue? And two things jump to my mind, and I wonder what your reaction is. The first is people don't care about prisoners. People don't care about people that they see as criminals. And it's, we have this mentality, which you sort of alluded to, the sort of lock them up and forget about them. We often put prisons in extremely rural locations, so we don't have to think about it. Um, And then America also has this sort of retributive thinking which is like they anything that happens in there we they deserve because they're a bad person or something like that and then the other thing is it's a little bit wonky right like what you're talking about is the you know a sort of data collection agency and oversight and best standards and i can already imagine people falling asleep when you start talking about best practices i wonder if you have any thoughts about like just why people don't care why why we can't why we can't get people to say like you took $50,000 from a private prison industry and now you're voting against this criminal justice reform bill? Like what is, that not, should not be allowed. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's just, how, why, why are we allowing this to go on? Why, why is that okay? Why is it okay for someone to take that amount of money and support private prison legislation without having to be held accountable for it? No, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what we what we can do or how we, you know, except to do things like what John's doing and bring the issue to the courts and try and raise awareness of it. But it's we're a throwaway society, Robert. You know, when you ride by a prison, you tank, John, any of you ride by a prison, what's your first thought? Your first thought is not about the men and women who work there. Your first thought is, thank God, those people are in where they belong. In a lot of instances, that's your thought. And, and that's the end of it. And you don't think about it again. You know, I'll tell you what. If on not your mine. paycheck, not my thought. If on your, not, it's, it's, if on your it's paycheck, definitely not my thought. What would be your thought, Tank? <laughs> or do I even want to ask? No. Well, I mean, my my thought is like you know, damn, did you have to spend ten million dollars on the extra barbed wire? You could have had a reading program. You know, that's that's how I think. But um, I've been directly connected and linked to um, trying to figure out an answer. But I I I, I would say that's true for. The large part of society is that like, you know, it's like, you know, they classify them and they, and they throw them in there. But I, I, I do think some people are kind of uh, have have the thought that um, something else could be done. Tank, I agree with you. And let me say this, too, about what you, what you just said. You know, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of the people that are behind those walls would be much better served on a GPS program, nonviolent offenders that we shouldn't be putting behind those walls. The same with a lot of the, the uh, individuals who are in there with mental health issues. They should be put in different facilities. There should be more money put into programming and rehabilitation than there is to keeping people locked up. I couldn't agree with you more. And from being on the inside, I see it. Now, there are a lot of folks. One of the things that really surprised me um, when I first started working behind the walls was how much so many of the guys that I met in there were just like me and my buddies on the street. You know, that really kind of surprised me. Yeah, there's a good 20 or 30% that uh, no. No, they weren't like my buddies on the street at all. They were right exactly where they needed to be. But there was a lot of folks in there that I thought, my goodness, you know, but for a few different strokes, I'd be in the same situation. And I think we have to have that empathy. And I think we lose that. There isn't anybody I've ever met that hasn't done something in their lives that could have wound them up in jail or they just got away with it. Right? I think you guys may be shaking your heads yes or no, but I'm sure you can look back to something in your life that, hey, man, if I got jammed up on that, There's that could have cost plenty me. of people I've sat with inside prisons, Brian where it was clear to me the only reason this person is in here is punishment 
It has nothing to do with public safety or very little to do with it. Um, and, of course, that's on a taxpayer's dime. It is affecting the individual's life, and it affects the families um, who quite often lose their wage earner when that happens. Yeah, Brian, when I got sentenced to 60 days in jail, I was probably the only one in the room that was actually relieved and happy. <laughs> I, I was like, 60, that's it? Okay, well, I'll take this as my warning from the man above. There you go. There you go. You know, uh, much of your work, Brian, is, has been with correctional officer unions. And I'm not suggesting correctional officer unions are all one and the same. I assume there are some significant differences in different kinds of activities. But another anti-bias uh, that shows up in terms of bringing more attention to these issues is anti-union. Um, what role do you think correctional officer unions and other unions you work with might have in trying to change the tide here? Well, to be quite honestly, I think they're probably the only hope we really have. Um, there are so many, unfortunately, there are so many correctional officers that do not have any representation. And now with this recent right to work um, thing that happened on the Supreme Court that strike down, struck down pretty much all collective bargaining, it's made it even more difficult. But I do think the unions are really the hope because they can at least organize and communicate and start to work together on certain items. And they can put political pressure where that needs to be placed at some times. But the unions always get a bad rap. You know, in corrections, they get a bad rap just like, oh, you're protecting the bad guys. You know, you got bad cops in there and, and you're protecting them. And people who say that are foolish. They don't know what unions are all about and they don't know what a union's obligation is as it relates to duty of fair representation. Same, another same thing about so, teachers, by the way. Same exact thing. Yeah. They, they got to have someone to blame. Right. People, we're just in this country, we got to have someone to blame. And we didn't do it. It's got to be somebody else. And so there's got to be a finger to point. So we point at the unions, you know, when it comes to labor issues. We don't point at management that's making money hand over fist or the, the stockholders that are making money. We point at the poor unions and the guy, the poor slob trying to fight for seventeen fifty an hour. We want to point at those guys. You know, that's just the way we are uh, right now. But the unions, I think, are the biggest hope for change, uh, especially when you have, you know, unions like the California Union, the New York Union, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, the guys in Massachusetts. Some of these unions, the New Jersey group, uh, Maryland, they got some of these stronger unions that are really pro-correctional officer that are taking a really good look at what the future holds and where we have to go from here. Uh, we're having a conference in Washington, D.C., May 12th and 13th on officer wellness, and it's our, also our National Medal of Honor program. And, and there will be over 30 unions from around the country that will be there for that gathering. And uh, there'll be a lot of discussion about how we move the profession forward and how we get the word out and start to hopefully get some change. And I think, like I said earlier, we have to look at those issues where the stakeholders are united, where we can really bring pressure. And I think the wellness issue is one of the ones where we can really, as you mentioned earlier, John, it's a, it's a horrific job. It takes a tremendous toll on us and our families. Uh, and also it takes a terrific toll on the inmates and their families as well. And so I think if we can unite on the issues uh, that, we, that we can agree on, we'll never agree on everything, obviously. But if we can unite on some of those issues and so a united front, I think we can make a difference. There's a, there's a story that comes out of Washington, D.C. that shows what like-stake-minded holders can do. Uh, CCA, at now Core Civic, CCA was in Washington, D.C. for years. A good friend of mine who ran the FOP there, the Fraternal Order of Police who ran the Corrections Division, uh, Jack Rosser, and I fought them for years. We'd go to city council meetings. We had protests. We had marches on city hall in Washington. Could get nowhere. Got nowhere. Jack finally went to the community. He went to the religious leaders. He went to the inmate advocates. One year later, CCA was gone from Washington, D.C. They joined hands as stakeholders. Now, Jack's not going to send Christmas cards to the inmate advocates' families. You know, they're not going to break bread. But on that issue, they all came together and they defeated a demon, CCA, and got them out of D.C. So there are times when we can come together, and I believe we have to come together now, and I think mental health is what's going to do it. We have to come together and work to a common goal. The men and women who live there and the men and women who work there are all coming out. And we don't want to be with 34% PTSD, and we don't want them with a recidivism rate of 90% either. We have to do better. And we can. But there has to be a will. And I think that one of the things that may help that, uh, Robert, I think you were pointing to this a little bit earlier, 
If on your paycheck, where it shows your FICA and what you have to pay the government, if they had what you were paying in prison costs, you may get some people's ears raised and some eyebrows going up. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm, this, how much of my money is going to this? For what? And what's my return? Yeah, I, I always thought that one of the mo like more, again, this is sort of a wonky thing, so it's hard to get people to care about it. But one of the more insidious ways that private prisons have sort of usurped the system is one of the few ways that individuals got to say whether we were going to build more prisons or not was through bond construction, right? Like if uh, if the state needed a new prison, they would go to a, a municipality and, uh, and say, we have to fund it. Will you pass this bond issue? And if I, as an individual said, no, we've got too many prisons, I could vote that down and I could mobilize my community and stop that prison from being built. Private prisons can do an end around around that whole process, right? They, they can make an agreement directly with the legislature or depending on how the, you know, how the state structure is set up directly with the, the warden or the Department of Corrections or whoever, they build it and then they get this long-term lease and it never goes in front of the people. And so that the one way that people got to interact and say no more prisons has just been usurped. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to tell you, Brian, is that um, some, of, some of the things that I've done with uh, players uh, on financial literacy was to uh, figure out if they were um, knowingly or unknowingly invested in any type of private prisons. And turns out that it was like over 50% of them were uh, investing in private prisons and they didn't even know it because the name sounds so much not like a prison. So uh, that's that kind of rang a bell when you said that. Oh, yeah, they, they, they've played a great game, you know, for a long time. Uh, and, and fortunately, I think one of the movements, too, and I know John's aware of this, has been on the college campuses to divest uh, from these private prison institu uh, institutions. And, and that needs to get more airplay, too. We're actually... We actually do a program called Bridging the Gap, um, where we work with, there's about 100 colleges now that we work with. They're about 50, split 50-50, conservative and liberal colleges. And they'll bring the students together. And they will talk on different major topics, like a TED Talk. But they'll talk on uh, topics like corrections. And now I've been bringing in like three officers every couple of months, and they'll sit down and talk with these college students and, <laughs> excuse me, and tell them about what life is really like behind the walls. Because these are our future leaders. And the only thing they know about corrections is what they see in the movies. They don't know anything about what's really going on in there. And so few of the officers have ever been given the opportunity to speak that this is a great opportunity, not only for the future leaders to learn, but for these officers to have an opportunity to express themselves as to what they go through and what life behind the walls is like. So it's a pretty successful program. I'd like to see a lot more of them. In the past, Brian, you had the opportunity to... Uh, sit on a committee uh, put together by former um, was it United States Attorney or or head of the Department of Justice Janet Reno, um, dealing with issues like safety and abuse. Uh, if you were to sit on such a panel today, what would be your top three priorities in the area of corrections reform? Well. It all starts, and, and this may seem so, I don't know, so boring. It starts with staffing, John. Plain and simple. That's the number one thing we need is minimum staffing levels in all our facilities. The second thing we need is national training and standards guidelines so that we're being trained every year the same way so that we know what we're walking into. You know, we spend an inordinate amount of time in our training right now on self-defense. Now, we absolutely need that. Don't get me wrong. It's a dangerous environment, and people need to be able to protect themselves and to handle these situations. And we need that self-defense training, no doubt about it. But what we never get the real training in is where the real damage is done, and that's in mental health. We don't get that training. We need to, we need to do that. So I think we need to take a look at the staffing. We need to take a look at national training standards guidelines. And we need to have a wellness program that impacts everybody behind the walls, not just the staff. We need to be teaching the staff emotional intelligence, and we need to spread that teaching to the inmate population as well. We need to teach our managed transformational leadership skills so they will start using the knowledge that the officers and staff have instead of just dictating this is what we're going to do because I'm a new guy on the job and here's my policy. All right? These are the three things that I would look at 
to start off the conversation and try to make some of the changes. But again, as boring as mundane as it sounds, it all starts with staffing. If you don't have the staff, you can't have the programs. You don't have the programs, you have problems. Brian, I, I got a question. It's kind of a, it's kind of a funny question, but I, I just want to kind of see what you would say. Would you vote for a president who you disagreed with everything, uh, all of his other policies, if, if his uh, policies for correcting the prisons was spot on? How would you, how would you handle that, sir? I'm an American <laughs> tank. I'd have to vote against him. There are other issues. <laughs> if that's the only issue, is it important to me? Yeah, I've made it my life's work. It's extremely important to me. But if you want to talk about some other political issues, I'd gladly get in them with you. Uh, and we'll probably agree a lot more than you think would agree. Oh, hell yeah. I just, I, I, I just find it funny that, like, you know, oftentimes, like, it's, it's, you know, when you look at these politicians who come in, um, you know, they've got, you know, for example, like Biden, Biden, you know, he, he had the, um, you know, he was going to do away with private prisons. And, and, you know, I was, I was, I felt very, very happy about that. But I mean, like every other thing that he has to do, I'm like, shit, I don't like this guy, but I'm with them on the private prisons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it's a weird thing. And that's why I keep coming back to this bond issue though. It's like, the, the criminal justice stuff it often gets pushed into the back burner because it's not as uh, divisive and therefore the political parties haven't made it the priority that they're pushing, right? You get a lot of other hot button issues that get pushed to the front. And so it, the way for people to directly interact with the, with the justice system, just getting that pulled out from under them seems like a, a, a big loss for accountability, for, uh, you know, for democracy, for direct democracy. It's just a terrible thing. Brian, is there anything you'd like to say about what you're doing now as the director of One Voice United? Thank you, John. I think that there's a couple of things we're focusing on, and we've put together an international working group on correctional wellness. We're working with uh, officers in Norway. They'll be coming in, uh, flying in for our conference in May. We're working with officers in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, we've reached out to the EU and to officers in Canada. Uh, this is an international problem, uh, correctional officer wellness. And it goes right down to the to all of things that happen within corrections. If we can get the officers better situated, uh, have them better trained so they can deal with the daily day-to-day -day stresses that they deal with, I think that'll go a long way uh, to solving some of the problems that we have in our system as well. Um, I'd like to see a major change to the drug laws. I think the drug laws have caused us more problems than, we'll, than we have any idea how deep that's gone and, and, and hurt our system. And I'd like to see something happen on that front. But my organization isn't working on that particular thing. What we're working on now is sticking really closely to the mental health of officers and to also raise the profession through our Medal of Honor program. You know, like I said, there's no counter narrative uh, to the negative narrative that's out there about corrections. You don't hear about the good stories. You don't hear all the good these guys and gals do every day behind those walls, the lives they save. You don't hear those stories. And we need that counter narrative. Uh, we need to be able to get there and get the word out on what these men and women do every day. You know, and, and, and I hate to see the bad stories. You know, We're going to see them because let's be honest, not all teachers should teach, not all preachers should preach, and not all people should be given a badge. You know, and it doesn't take many, especially when you don't have a counter narrative to the positive. It doesn't take many to cast a bad shadow on everybody. So we need to work towards better exposure of who we are and what we do and the good we do and explain that to folks. And more importantly than anything is to get the voices of the officers and that do this job, get their voices heard, give them a platform by which they can get their voices heard and their ideas, give them a place to put their ideas out there, uh, an avenue where we can show the public and we can show the administrators, we know this job, we know what it takes to change it. And we need to sit down together as stakeholders and make the changes together. If they continue to dictate change, they're going to continue to have failure. Until they involve the stakeholders, the men and women who are most directly impacted in this situation with the policy changes and moving forward in the future, they're not going to have any change. We're going to wind up with the same stuff going on that's gone on for the last 200 years is going to go on for the next 100. If God help us, we live that long. We last that long as a nation. That's going to continue unless we step up now and realize what we're doing is wrong. Admit it and move forward. The system 
is going to be in trouble for quite a long way to go. I'm not going to give up right now. I think we have a foothold on getting some of this stuff done for officer wellness and raising awareness. And I think that's the most important thing that I can do right now. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Tank, John, you guys have anything else to add? I'd ask to add one thing. Please. I just want to thank all the guys and gals that do that job every day. I haven't been behind the walls for a while. And very few times do they get a pat on the back. They're always getting a kick in the ass. And so I want to be the one out there and say, listen, guys and gals, thank you today for going in there behind those walls and doing a job that very few people will do and protecting us and protecting the men and women that are incarcerated as well. I want to thank them all for doing that. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to say Thank you, Brian, for what you do and for giving us your time today and, and share your knowledge with us. Yep. Thanks again, Brian. And thanks everybody for listening. Please remember to go wherever you got this and listen to the podcast and leave a review and tell your friends about it because it, everything that we do on here is really about telling stories, getting the word out there on, on the, the profit motive and how it's corrupting the criminal justice system and sharing the stories of people like Brian and the people that are working and everybody else who's victimized by the system. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you next time.